In the early centuries of the church, there was a battle between Christians on the meaning of Scripture. They would argue over the meaning of different texts. And out of that, there would be gatherings of bishops trying to, to discern and de declare the truth of what our faith is. Out of that came a definitive understanding of the Trinity and a definitive understanding of Jesus Christ. But also in the same councils, there were declarations on Mary, Mother of God, Theotokos. There were declarations on her Immaculate Conception and other of the doctrines. The biggest question we get is, where is that in Scripture? Well, we'll talk about that today. Thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. And as I mentioned in the, in the quick opening, we're going to look a bit today about questions about the dogmas of Mary, addressing a question that often comes up, where is that in the Bible? And that will come not only from those outside the church, but often from those in the church that have been challenged by friends and family who uh, want to know, where is that in the Bible? What's the foundation for that teaching? And we'll look at that today on this program. Our guest has chosen as his verses he never saw, verses that deal particularly with uh, the dogmas of Mary. Our guest today on Deep in Scripture is a guest that's joined me before on the Journey Home program, Dr. Robert Stackpole. He is, uh, as his bio reads on the website, deepinscripture.com, uh, he's an American by birth. He earned a B.A. in history from Williams College in Massachusetts and a master's degree in theology from Oxford University in England. He was ordained an Anglican pastor before becoming Catholic in 1994. After his conversion, he married a Catholic Canadian and they went to Rome together where Robert obtained a doctorate in theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, or called the Angelicum. Upon returning to North America in 1997, he began work as the research director and later director of the John Paul II Institute of Divine Mercy based in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, a position he still holds. In that capacity, he has been a speaker at many conferences, an author of many journal articles and books on divine mercy, message, and devotion, including Jesus, Mercy Incarnate, and another book, Divine Mercy, a guide from Genesis to Benedict the 16th. He's also written St. Peter Lives in Rome. He's well, also the editor of Pillars of Fire in My Soul, The Spirituality of St. Faustina. Present, he is the author of the Divine Mercy Q&A course that regularly appears on the Principal Divine Mercy website every Wednesday at, and here's the website in case you're interested, www.thedivinemercy.org. But I also need to mention that Dr. Stackpole wears another hat. He's the, has principally he's focused on academic interests, uh, which now involve an ever-deepening study of the Catholic perspective on ecumenism and the life and writings of C.S. Lewis. Two subjects he also gets to teach at Redeemer Pacific College. He lives just outside of Vancouver with his wife, Catherine, and their daughter, Christina, who loves RPC so much that she already wants to sign up for the 2014-2015 the, uh, academic year, he mentions on his website. So it's great to have Robert with us. He's got a lot of background. I think I'm certain we'll talk a bit about divine mercy and its meaning because uh, uh, when you come from a Protestant background, you certainly know about the mercy of God, but you don't think of it in terms of divine mercy. What do we mean? when we say that as a Catholic. But he chose some passages today that are more focused on the issues about Mary. And let me read those passages, and then we'll take a break, and, and Robert will join us. The first passage he chose comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. I shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's the familiar passage from uh, the judgment scene in Genesis chapter 3. First, God was speaking, of course, to uh, the Satan, and then second of all, to the woman. And then the second 
group of passages that Robert chose come from Revelations, the other end of the Bible, beginning with chapter 11, verse 19, and then going through chapter 12, verse 6. First verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And then from chapter 12. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodite's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Stackpole. Hello, Robert. Hi, Marcus. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. And boy, you sound right next door. That's yeah, a, that's right, even though we're across the continent. Here. Uh, that's amazing. You know, modern technology. Uh, and the, some people, uh, you know, I almost have a, there are those that have kind of a, a, a Luddite mentality and want to get rid of all this technology. It's bad for us. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, these gifts from God have enabled us to to proclaim his glory and spread the gospel in a way never dreamed just a few years ago. Isn't that true? Yeah, and uh, you know, Marcus, I'm, I'm, it strikes me that the last time I, I got to talk with you, we were both uh, flown down to EWTN, down to Alabama mm-hmm. in person, but uh, this time you're able to do it in your studio, and I'm able to do it in my living room. So this is uh, something that takes the edge off when we're getting old and, and uh, crotchety <laughs> like you and me. I don't have much energy <laughs> that, left. Ain't that the truth? That's right. I mean, and, and you're wearing those two hats while you're sitting in your living room. You're, you're directing yeah, the right. John Paul II Institute way over on the... On the East Coast, and uh, probably prepping for your classes there on the West Coast. So yeah, I have a commute from sea to shining sea. You might <laughs> say. That's great, just amazing, just amazing. Well, uh, I mean, there's so much I'd love to talk to you about. We're going to get into these verses, but I do want to make sure I give you a chance to, to at least, um, address the issue of divine mercy because, I, as I said, it's not only something that non-Catholics don't know what we mean when we say the Divine Mercy, a Divine Mercy Chaplet, or Sister Faustina, but there's an awful lot of Catholics that still don't quite get it. Yeah, uh, Divine Mercy, in essence, means God's love that reaches out to meet the needs of His people. Whether they're suffering, or in trouble, or in sin, or needing forgiveness, or needing uh, sanctifying grace to help them overcome their sins, uh, it's a form of, of God's love. God's love is, of course, God giving himself in all sorts of ways. Um, but when we're really in need, that's what we use the, 
phrase, um, divine mercy. And you can actually take it, well, you can go back to the Hebrew, for example. There's uh, the concept of God's hesed love. In the Old Testament, it means his covenant faithfulness. He's, mm-hmm. You can always rely on him. Like that book that Scott Hahn wrote, uh, The Father Who Keeps His Promises. Right. That's God's hesed love. And there's also God's rahamim, which is his uh, love which comes literally from the womb, from the, from the depths. It's a, his pity and compassion for our plight. In uh, the New Testament, the word usually used for mercy is ilios, E-L-E-O-S, uh, which means love that's poured out. It comes from a word meaning oil that's poured out. It means when God pours himself out for the needs of his people. And again, in Latin, that's probably, the, in some ways, the best word of all to kind of capture it. The word is misericordia, which literally means uh, having a miserable heart. It means having a heart that's pained for the needs of others and that does something about it, uh, misericordia. So that's what the concept of divine mercy is in its essence. And it, and it kind of relates to uh, um, what we're talking about today mm-hmm. um, because I, I chose these particular passages, Marcus, because uh, when I was an Anglican pastor, I was exploring and thinking and praying about the Catholic faith. And I was certainly attracted to many of its doctrines and, and could see its, their roots in scripture and tradition and, and in reason. Um, but the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary in particular was always a stumbling block to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed to me, well, how does this fit with uh, you know, the message of the merciful love of God? Of the, uh, the Immaculate Conception Assumption it sounds like Mary didn't need mercy. You know, she's some, somehow uh, you know, standing on the side of this whole divine mercy thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I just couldn't see where the roots are in, in Scripture. Well, I didn't choose passages related to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception today, but um, certainly, ever so briefly, uh, the Immaculate Conception I became convinced of instantly, because that's all about mercy. Mm-hmm. What that says, when you actually understand it, is God, out of his merciful love, uh, rescued Mary from uh, the corruption of original sin right from the first moment of her existence prepare her for her special vocation to be the mother of the Savior. So that means that everything about Mary is a result of God's mercy and God's grace. Uh, and, and so, okay, that one I, I kind of got under my uh, I thought, but what about the assumption? What's going on here? And where could that possibly be in, in Scripture? Hence the passages I, I picked out today which relate to this. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, the, the issue of the Immaculate Conception, the as a, this, this beautiful sign of God's mercy it had nothing to do with anything Mary did, of course. It was just a pure grace. Well, we experience a bit of that when we think about the graces we receive in baptism when we're babies. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bit of a sign of that, you know. That, and often non-Catholics will critique that and make that very, you know, the baby had nothing. Baby doesn't understand its faith. How can you baptism? Well, they don't understand the mercy of God. That's right. And you know, Martin Luther did actually on this particular issue because. On a lot of issues, actually, he did. Sure. On this one in particular, because he defended infant baptism and said, no, that's the, uh, infant baptism is the sign of God's prevenient grace, that wonderful word from uh, Latin, prevenire, meaning to come before, where God's grace comes before anything we deserve or anything we merit or anything we can do, even before we can ask for it. Mm-hmm. He pours out his grace to help us get started, if you will. And uh, he said, that's what infant baptism is, baptism is for us, and that's what was was for Mary. And uh, one other thing I wanted to, to just tuck in here, because uh, your description of divine mercy and the way it, uh, the way we understand it, also reminds me of the beauty and the importance of hearing it within the bigger picture of the church, because, you know, you're wearing one hat that keeps you on the East Coast, and the truth is that many don't realize that the the foundations of Unitarianism and universalism actually came out of Calvinism as an overreaction to the sovereignty of God in favor of the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. Because there were those staunch Calvinist Puritan pastors in Boston that began to struggle with the idea that how could a, 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 a merciful God punish somebody infinitely for a finite sin. Mm-hmm. And because they had a problem with that kind of unmerciful sovereignty, they opted towards the idea that when a person dies, they don't go to hell forever. 
They only go to hell until their sins are paid for, and then everyone will go to heaven, which is funny because basically the Unitarians got rid of hell and they replaced it with purgatory. <laughs> right. And I think the modern Unitarians got rid of purgatory too. So. <laughs> exactly. But the point is, there's the, the example when you throw out sacred tradition and you run with your own interpretation, you can even mess up an understanding of the mercy of God. Yeah, it's what they call the peril of the pendulum, isn't it? When you, yep. when you start getting an unbalanced faith that you know, sways outside of the boundaries of the the guidance of the ancient church, then suddenly the potential swings wildly back and forth. Radical Calvinism and radical liberalism, and back and forth they go. And it's still going on today, those pendulums. Definitely. And and the the first verse you chose, Genesis 3, is another good example that there are lots of interpretations out there uh, of people that have agenda. Uh, In other words, that they don't want it to say something or they do want it to say something. So why don't we look at that passage Mm -hmm. and then, uh, and Robert, you can tell us why you chose this and and we can run. Let me read it again for the audience. Genesis 3, 15 and 16, a familiar passage. Uh, It's, again, part of the judgment scene from the fall of man. Begin with verse 15, and this is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. All right, Robert. Okay. Um, yeah, this, this passage is interesting because um, Pope Pius XII, in uh, his papal decree about the Assumption of Mary, mentions this and points to this as one of the scriptural seeds of the doctrine of the assumption. And of course, when I first read that, I said, you know, come again? <laughs> We're talking about Genesis here, and you're defining the assumption in 1950, so I'm seeing a span of 4,000 years there about <laughs> the writing of Genesis and Pius XII and wondering how, these, how we link these up. But if you look at the passage here, uh, okay, Adam and Eve have um, eaten the apple, they've fallen, uh, Satan was the one who tempted them, the serpent, and God says the sermon, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, the Hebrew word enmity there means radical opposition, total opposition between one and the other. And you can do a word study of that and see where it appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. The, that's what it always means, right? Complete opposition between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, already there's a quandary there, because if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you say, well, if by the woman he means Eve and her descendants and her seed. Well, the people of Israel weren't in radical opposition to Satan. The whole Old Testament mm-hmm. is how many times they cave into Satan. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, right. A, it's a disastrous story of, you know, despite all their failures, God hangs in with them, right, and won't give up on them. <laughs> but there's certainly, you wouldn't describe them as in radical enmity uh, with, against Satan. Um, and so the verse goes on, open in between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. Now, uh, we were talking before the program, Marcus, about mm-hmm. this debate about, well, is it uh, he shall bruise your head or she shall bruise your head? It's talking about somebody stepping on the head of Satan. And, yep. uh, our Catholics in the audience might know they've probably seen pictures of Mary mm-hmm. stepping on the snake, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that's because it's actually a possible reading of the Hebrew there. The Hebrew's ambiguous. It could be uh, she will bruise your head, she will crush and so some of the uh, Latin writers in the church said, well, that's, uh, I think St. Jerome was one, said, well, that could be an allusion to Mary. But actually, the general consensus with the, of the fathers was the right reading was, he shall bruise your head. And it probably fits better in the, the Hebrew there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the I, and that's why they call this passage the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first hint of the Gospel. It's the first prophecy in the Gospel, the first hint that God is going to do something uh, to crush the serpent's head. He's going to send his Messiah. His Messiah is the one uh, who will crush Satan's head, even though the prophecy says, of course, Satan will um, bite his heel at the same time. So someone will crush Satan's head, but will be wounded in the process, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is exactly what happens to Jesus, our Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. He defeats the devil, for sure, but on the cross. Uh, where he suffers the pains of death for us, and the devil throws at him everything he's got. 
So that means that in this passage, the seed of woman who shall crush Satan's head is Jesus, the Messiah. It's a foreshadowing, a, um, a prophecy of the Messiah. Well, then who does that make the woman? It makes the woman Mary, his mother. And indeed, she's the only candidate in all of Scripture, a female candidate who you could say was in radical enmity, or radical opposition uh, to Satan, as we know right from Luke chapter 1, where the angel greets her, hail full of grace. I, w- I won't get into the, the word studies here too much, except to say that probably the most accurate translation of the words there are hail transformed by grace one. One who has been transformed by grace, because it's uh, Luke there in chapter 1, in the angelic salutation, uses a verb that only appears one other time in the New Testament, in Ephesians 1, 6. And we know from the Church Fathers commenting on Ephesians 1, 6, that word, karitosen, means transformed by grace. The angel, this is the only person, it doesn't even call Mary by name. Mm-hmm. It's right. this, this is her real name. Hail, transformed by grace, one, the Lord is with you. So there's only one candidate for a woman in all the scripture who's in radical enmity with Satan, and that's Mary. Which, I'll, um, just to make a comment here, which uh, even saddens me when I see translators of the Bible, even Catholic Modern Bibles want to say, you know, hail, O favored one. Uh, you know, certainly grace means favor, but there's so much more meaning there that sadly, th- I guess the committees felt their arms twisted to be more ecumenical, and so they watered down what the verse... Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee to save us. Yes, exactly right. And <laughs> exactly <laughs> well, I'm right. sure the committees do their best, but, uh, you know, favor can be an external thing, right? Mm-hmm. An external honor of some kind. Grace implies some kind of inner transforming uh, gift. Um, well, you know, how does Pius then, Pius the Twelfth in 1950, when he defines for the Church the doctrine of the Assumption, how does he link this prophecy in Genesis 3:15 with mm-hmm. the idea that a Mary, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was raised body and soul to heaven? Well, here's how he does it, and it's, um, it's done by many theologians long before him. Well, basically, Satan has two weapons, according to Scripture, sin and death. And Genesis 3.15 says that the woman will be in radical opposition, just like her seed, the son, her son, the Messiah. They will share the same radical opposition to sin and death. Well, we know Jesus was preserved from all sin. Uh, He's the spotless Lamb of God, and he rose again on Easter morning. So how does Mary stand in radical opposition? How does she, How is she um, not, as it were, under the sway of Satan's two weapons, sin and death? Well, because in her immaculate conception, she's preserved by grace from the power of original sin. And at, her, at the close of her life, she's taken body and soul into heaven to share in the risen life of her son as a foretaste, as a, a symbol of, of the joy that awaits us all. Now, Pius XII didn't say that this text proves the assumption, but he says that it's alluded to here. It fits mm-hmm. with the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15. I can hear within me the old voice of my Protestant skepticism rising, uh, having been a Protestant for 40 years. You were How long were you in Anglican before you came into the church? Oh, gosh, I don't know, about 20 years? Yeah, yeah all right. All right. See, we're old guys. I was telling you that earlier. Yeah, that's program, right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I'm sitting here with my cane next to me. And, <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I, I find myself, again, with that old um, the questions rising. Oh, come on, you're making it fit. Or, and I, part of me wants to say, to those that challenge this idea of the uh, assumption, uh, what's the big deal? I mean, why is it a problem? I mean, so what if we believe Mary was assumed? Why is it such a problem for you? What difference does it make? And I'm wondering if it's because they think we're saying she was raised to Godhead. Yes, that, I think that's part of the fear. But, of course, um, in, in a sense, nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Uh, it, if you look at the... What, what's the Easter faith of the Church? The Easter faith is that uh, God loves us so much that he came in the person of his son, died for our sins, and rose again to give us the hope of everlasting life, a life like his, forever and ever. And 
So, you know, we sometimes say at Easter time, the Easter faith is Christ is risen. Well, that's true. That's the heart of it, but that's not the whole of the Easter faith. Because the good news that the apostles proclaimed was not only that Christ is risen, that per- but precisely because he's risen, he's bringing the whole body of his faithful believers to join him one day in mm-hmm. heavenly glory. So where do we see that begin? Where do we see that prefigured? It's actually in Mary, who's the one who's closest to him, who's full of grace. And Jesus, uh, St. Paul says in Philippians uh, 3, uh, I think it's 3.20 or 3.21, he shall change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that because I remember at Anglican uh, uh, funerals I used to do, they would always quote that passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the assumption is. It's just simply a sign of our common hope that the person who is closest to Christ's own loving heart has already been raised to glory before us. It's, as it were, a, um, a completion, a rounding out of, the, of our Easter joy. Um, it doesn't even separate Mary from us, much less put her on the, uh, on the level of Godhead, because she's simply a sign of our own destiny, of all those mm-hmm. whose hearts are surrendered to Christ. Her heart was so totally surrendered to him. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Well, in that passage, which we may not get to today, but that passage emphasizes that it never took away her freedom of will. Mm-hmm. She she still had the freedom to say yes or no because the angel didn't come down and say, "Hey, regardless of what you want to happen, this is going to happen to you." That's not what it said, you know. That she had the freedom and relinquished it, aided by grace. So in that sense, Mary is for all of us a, as you said, is a, a reminder of what grace can do for us if we surrender to Christ and then ask his grace to change us and empower us to live by grace, kind of in the circular wheel of grace, you know, the beauty of that. Let's take a break, Robert. We hmm. get back, let's, let's jump to that Revelations passage, if we would, and, uh, and explore how that also talks to us about the Assumption. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Stackpole, and you're hearing us on EWTN. Global Catholic Radio Network. Next time on EWTN Live, in a world of darkness, where do we turn for protection? God and his army of angels are in constant spiritual battle for the salvation of souls. Tune in when Father Mitch talks with Father Peter Perusachuvik and Father Andreas Kowalczyk about the Feast of the Holy Angels. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Mark Scrodi. Joined today by Dr. Robert Stackpole, we're looking at verses that uh, that help us understand the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary. Robert, let's look at this Revelation passage. Um, let me read, if I would, just the first one, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, you know a bit disjunct from the others. But talk about what does this have to do uh, as especially maybe its connection to early church fathers. But I'll let you run with it. The Revelations eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Okay, I think to to, uh, grasp what's going on here in Revelation, um, we have to remember what the ark of of the covenant was. The ark of the covenant, remember that's a 
wonderful box the Israelites had, right? Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. It's from that movie. Uh, oh, yeah, it's from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> but, but actually, that, that movie tells us at least one true thing. <laughs> the rest of it wasn't true, but it tells us one true thing is that the Ark has been lost. Mm-hmm. So the Israelites, you can imagine a Jewish person reading the book of Revelation, what they know is that we, nobody knows where the Ark is. Okay? And here in Re- Revelation 11, 19, it's an audio-visual spectacular. It's like trumpets blowing, lights going, ba-da, here's the ark. And you can imagine, wow, where's, what do you mean here's the ark? Here's the ark. Okay, well, let's get back to what, what the ark was. The ark was the, uh, that box that the Jews carried, uh, in which they carried the signs of the Old Covenant. It contained the tables of the law and uh, the priestly rod of Aaron and some of the manna bread from heaven that God had said the people of Israel in the desert, so it's, it encapsulates for them the Old Covenant, right? Um, and, of course, it, down through history, it had been lost. Now, one thing we know from the early Church Fathers is that the early Fathers called Mary the Ark of the New Covenant, or the New Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> they may have a better way to say it. Um, and there's a wonderful thing in, in um, Scott Hahn's book called Hail, Holy Queen, where he says, we actually see this not only amongst the Fathers, but it's actually alluded to in Scripture, not in Revelation, but actually in the uh, Gospel according to St. Luke, in the story of Mary going up to, up to the hill country to visit uh, Elizabeth. And in his book, I'll just tell your readers the pages, so if they have the book, they can look it up. It's okay. All right. pages 63 to 64 of Scott Hahn's book, Hail, Holy Queen. Uh, he shows that St. Luke is, in the way he tells the story of Mary going up to visit Elizabeth, he's deliberately uh, alluding to 2 Samuel 6, the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant up the hill country into Jerusalem. And there are numerous, just numerous parables, like even the way the, the stories start. Uh, Mary arose and went. Well, David arose and went. Um, uh, in the, what they say uh, about the Ark, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? Uh, echoes, echoed in what uh, Elizabeth says, how can the mother of my Lord come to me? Uh, in um, something that Scott Hahn doesn't mention, but it's, uh, you can find it in biblical commentaries, uh, Elizabeth proclaims with a loud voice, as the Revised Standard Version says, Blessed are you among women. Well, actually, the word in Greek used there means uh, she shouted for joy, if you will, hmm. ex- exalted it sometimes. Uh, that word is only used four or five other times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which Luke was using, and every time it's used for someone rejoicing over the Ark of the Covenant. So without going through all the uh, links that Scott Hahn makes here, Scott Hahn says it's very clear that for, at least for, the, for St. Luke, Mary is portrayed here as the new Ark of the Covenant. And now we'll go back to Revelation eleven nineteen. So uh, you've got this you know, tremendous um, color and light show, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and the Ark of the Covenant's appearing in heaven. Now, another thing our listeners have to remember is the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible were not part of the original manuscripts. I'm sure most of your listeners know that, but just to remind ourselves Mm -hmm. that those were added later by uh, early medieval monks in order to help people find Scripture passages more easily. Um, But in the original manuscript of the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 11.19 was immediately followed by Revelation 12.1, and there was no chapter and verse. A division there, right? And so what do you, what do you get? Uh, immediately after this uh, tremendous sign in the heavens of the Ark of the Covenant with flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, then you get the verse, and a great portent appeared in heaven, Revelation 12.1, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And then in verse 5, she, was, she brought forth a male child, one is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So what is St. John telling us here in this book? We found the Ark, the new Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> it's a woman, woman in heaven, clothed with the sun, and she's the one who brought forth the male child who should rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's an allusion to Psalm 2.9, which is a prophecy of the Messiah. She's the mother of the Messiah. Um, this interpreting the woman clothed with the sun in, in Revelation 12 was... Uh, certainly current among the fathers, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Ephraim the Syrian in the 4th century, who is one of the great scriptural exegetes of the early church. 
all said, yes, that's Mary. She's the woman clothed with the sun. You know, it's interesting when you, we mentioned uh, the movie, uh, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, a little bit ago, and it's, it's kind of interesting when you think of it from the standpoint that uh, the, the, the context in Revelation, the parallels to Luke and, and to the Old Testament, the quotes from the early church fathers, the continuous teaching of the church has always identified Mary with the Ark of the Covenant, the new Ark of the Covenant. So in other words, in essence, the, the real Ark is not lost. The real Ark is Mary, you know, the authentic, the, the valuable Ark, the one that really makes a difference. But mm-hmm. yet we have this movie that kind of emphasizes, no, 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 I'm going to keep looking for it, keep looking, keep looking. Yeah, well, and the movie's okay because it, oh, uh, it, it dispatches the Nazis pretty well at the end, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it I makes mean, up I, for its sins I, at the end. <laughs> I'm not putting down the movie because my boys and I love it. I mean, I, we just love <laughs> the movie. And, uh, uh, I mean, it shows the power that they believe. They're, they're actually pointing to a divine, even in the movie. Right. But again, it's it's... It, it reminds me of, of people not open to the truth. They keep yeah. wanting to look for something else. Yeah, that's right. And and let's let, let's um, explain a little more why Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. Uh, first of all, it's Mary bodily in heaven in Revelation twelve one because it's her body that's the Ark of the mm-hmm. Covenant. It's not just a, a you know a symbolic thing. It, it's Mary, the woman clothed with the sun, is bodily the Ark of the Covenant because what does she carry within her body? Just as the old ark carried the tables of the law, so she carries the true lawgiver, Jesus Christ, in her womb. Just as the old ark carried the priestly rod of Aaron, so she carries in her womb the true high priest of the, of the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Just as the old ark carries within it the manna bread from heaven that God fed his people in the wilderness, so Mary carries within her womb the true bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. So, uh, basically, it, it all fits. But, of course, you know that the scripture that says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, is an <laughs> argument. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said? Something along those lines. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, there's, of course, debate and amongst modern scholars about, well, is this woman clothed with the sun, you know, really Mary bodily in heaven? Uh, but if you look at the whole passage, maybe not. Some scholars say, no, it's, it's Israel. Some scholars say, no, it's the church. Well, let's, let's look at each of those possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, is the woman clothed with the sun Israel? You can certainly see signs that uh, she represents Israel, especially later in the passage. She has on her head a, a crown of 12 stars, which could represent the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. And also, later in the passage, when she gives birth, she gives birth with labor pangs and travail, and the language that's used there is very reminiscent of uh, the prophecies in Isaiah about how the daughter of Zion will be in travail and uh, tribulation before the coming of the Messiah, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Jerusalem, that daughter of Zion being Jerusalem, right? And so you could say, well, yeah, this is the, you know, the agonies of the people of Israel before the coming of the Messiah. And so on the one hand, you say, well, yeah, okay, so clearly the woman clothed with the sun is, represents Israel. But there's, there's a problem with that. If you go further down in the passage, a part we didn't read, uh, Revelation 12, 13 to 16, it portrays the woman fleeing into the desert uh, to be protected and, and nourished by God. Mm-hmm. Um, after the, messi- the the child, the Messiah, has been born, uh, sorry, been born and enthroned into heaven. So that clearly describes what God does for his people of the new covenant, the church, not for Israel. Mm-hmm. So some scholars say, well, no, it can't be Israel, although the Woman clothed with the sun is, has got to be um, the church. And again, they look at the crown of 12 stars. So, okay, well, maybe that represents the 12 apostles. And uh, certainly that would make sense of this part in Revelation 12, 13 to 16, where you know, God protects his people uh, from persecution after the uh, ascension of Jesus into heaven. But there's something that doesn't fit with that explanation either. <laughs> A part we did read... Mm-hmm. And that was where the um, Revelation 12.5 portrays the woman as the mother of the Messiah. Now, if the woman represents the church, you'd have to ask, how could the church give birth to Christ? It, it should be the other way around, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. So it seems to fit, the, the church explanation fits, but then it doesn't fit. 
go back to the uh, interpretation of Mary as, uh, sorry, of uh, the woman clothed with the sun as Mary. Um, and uh, clearly, it, it, uh, that interpretation fits Mary as the one who gives birth to the Messiah. But it also fits another thing, is that the other two main characters in this passage, mm-hmm. there's the dragon who uh, the passage explicitly says represents Satan, and there's the child who's clearly the Messiah, implicitly the one who rules all with the rod of iron. So since those two symbolic characters represent, characters represent um, historical individuals, it's very likely that uh, the woman clothed with the sun represents a historical individual. So, okay, you've got this mess. Now, right? It kind of fits Mary. It kind of fits the church. It kind of fits Israel. What does what is this woman clothed with the sun represent? And it, it leaves you the mess leaves you with two options. You could say we don't know, we're confused, or you could take the option of the church fathers, who saw it as all of the above. That in fact, it's it's common in Scripture to take a historical individual as representing a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in, in Psalm um, 44, verse 4, Jacob is used as, uh, they talk about Israel, the people of Israel, as Jacob. Or uh, Romans chapter 5 talks about Adam as representing all of humanity. And um, same thing, it, some scholars say in uh, Isaiah 53, the famous passage about the suffering servant of the Messiah. Uh, he is despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he uh, has borne our uh, griefs, and um, by his stripes we are healed. Uh, most scholars say, well, there's a historical individual mention being referred to there, the prophecy of the Messiah, but he also represents the whole suffering vocation of Israel. So this is a common biblical thing, to take a historical individual and to use them as representing the whole people of God. And I think that's precisely what's going on here. The woman clothed with the sun is Mary. Uh, she's the Ark of the New Covenant. We've already seen the links with uh, the Gospel according to Luke. Um, but she doesn't just represent her ste- herself. She represents the church, the, church. the fulfillment of the, people of, of the vocation of the people of God. And so you have what's called here a double symbol or a triple mm-hmm. symbol. Now this is real hard for us to uh, as moderns, because we like to think, uh, you know, an author has one meaning in mind. Uh, we're very kind of literal-minded and post-enlightenment people, right? He has one meaning, one thing. No, this is like a triple exposure photograph. Uh, think of it that way. And again, this is not. there's no special pleading here. This is common. This is often done in, by um, biblical writers. Robert, let's take a, our final break. When we come back, uh, I want you to address the question. I can imagine someone saying, okay... I love Jesus, so what? What difference does it make mm-hmm. that I believe that Mary was assumed? Let's talk about that when we come back in the remaining minutes. Okay. Next time on Life on the Rock, it's lived with a heart of simplicity. To live the life of a saint is to attain the fullness of the Catholic faith by completely following Christ's teachings. Tune in when Susan Conroy joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about speaking of saints. That's on the next Life on the Rock. Here on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. All right, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody, joined today by Dr. Robert Stackpole. And how about in the remaining minutes, I, I posed that question to you before the break. In other words, uh, I could imagine not just maybe a few of our listeners, but maybe myself, maybe you. Listen, I love Jesus Christ. I've surrendered to him. He's my Savior, my Lord. Uh, So what if you believe in the assumption of Mary? Uh, What difference does it make? Okay, here's the way I think of it, Marcus. And it was kind of, uh, when I say, when I was uh, a Protestant pastor wrestling with these things, I said, okay, I can see that... um, I wouldn't say you can prove Mary's assumption sola scriptura. I think it's uh, these are pointers in Scripture rather than proof <laughs> of the doctrine. Um, but then I also had to ask myself that question: like, you know, does it really make a difference? Why did the Church bother to define it? Why couldn't they just leave it as a, you know something a nice speculation for people? Well, 
again, it was Scott Hahn's book, Hail Holy Queen, which I really recommend to people to read on this. It's beautifully done. And he talks about how when we come to Jesus Christ, uh, he invites us not just into a personal relationship with himself, as if that wasn't enough, but bonus, he invites us into his whole covenant family. And God's covenant family is perfect. It doesn't lack anything. Jesus shares with us his Father, God. Jesus himself is our brother. Heaven becomes our home. We're invited into the whole household of God, as as, um, St. Paul says. And so nothing can be lacking in that that beautiful and perfect family of God which nurtures us um, on our earthly pilgrimage and ultimately receives us um, into heaven. Um, But what's lacking from that family? What's lacking from the home? There's a mother lacking from the home. Uh, He shares with us his divine life, his home, his father, brothers and sisters, but the family has no mother. It seems to me uh, any family is incomplete without a mother. Uh, and we see that paralleled with the, um, uh, in John 17, you know, uh, where from the cross. Yeah, John 19, right. John 19, excuse me, uh, where, where Jesus, instead of giving his uh, mother to his brothers, if there are any, right, that would have been the normal thing. He doesn't do that because uh, other verses... Confirm the fact that he had no natural brothers, that mm-hmm. that uh, he gives them a John. But what's the meaning of that? I think that connects with just exactly what you're saying. Yeah, and notice how he speaks, notice how he addresses his mother in that passage. Mm-hmm. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He doesn't call her Mary or Mom. He calls her woman. It's the same woman alluded to in Genesis 3.15. Mm-hmm. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And it's the same woman of Revelation 12, the woman clothed with the sun. You see, normally you wouldn't think as your dying words that you would call your mom woman. <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> right. Sound, right. <laughs> doesn't sound very affectionate. Yeah, because he's, he's conveying a message here. And John 19 is so wonderful because at the end of this, where he, he actually doesn't call John by his, his proper name either, the disciple whom Jesus loved, mm-hmm. his son. So there's something, an important message that Jesus is getting across here. And right at the end of that passage, it says, seeing, um, uh, Scripture says, seeing that all things were accomplished, he said, it is finished. I thirst, it is finished. And he gives up uh, his spirit, right? In other words, this is the last thing that Jesus had to do before he finally gave up his life. The last part of his, the last thing he had to accomplish for his earthly ministry to be done. He had to put, as it were, the last, part of his, uh, the family of God in place, which is giving us all a mother. Son, behold your mother. In other words, John, the beloved disciple, uh, represents all the beloved disciples of Christ. That's not why he's not called John. He's called son and a disciple whom Jesus loved. He represents all the disciples of Christ. And son, behold your mother. And here's another uh, neat thing in the Greek. Right after that, it also says, and John took her into his own home, is the sad, sadly the way it's translated mm-hmm. in most Greek Bibles. But that's not uh, the Greek, what the Greek actually says. It doesn't use the word home. It says, estaidia, which means took her as his own. Mm-hmm. The same Greek used in John 1, where it says, Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. Uh, he took her as his own mother. So we, as beloved disciples, are to take Mary... She's given to us as a mother. And by the way, mothers are not bodiless. You can't even think of your mother as a bodiless thing. I'm sure that's part of the reason uh, Jesus decided, I'm going to raise my mother body and soul in anticipation of the resurrection of all my faithful disciples. Because uh, our our mother is someone who has that bodily connection with us all, if you will. And so what what Christ has done is raised up in our sight. not only through the doctrine of the Assumption, but all the Marian doctors of the Church, he's given a mother to the family, not equal to the Godhead by any means. Um, she's a heavenly queen, but not a divine queen. She's raised up by grace to be the mother of the family of God. And uh, that, for me, completes the family picture, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting to connect these statements, including the John 19 statement, in with what we know from history and tradition. Uh, 
you know, if you if you take the passage in John, and let's just take the angle that it isn't John calling himself the one whom Jesus loved, which there's reason to believe that could be true, mm-hmm. as you understand love, but it could also have been the amanuensis who was writing it down as John preached. Right. John was telling the story, and so the community who who so loved John recognized who he was as the one whom Jesus loved, telling the story. But historically, we know that John is in Ephesus and Mary is with him. You know, there's the place where John, Mary lived for the rest of her life with this disciple. Uh, the, when this gospel was written down, all of this tradition about Mary was noon, known firsthand to all of these people. That's right, and, and isn't that also why uh, in, if the doctrine of the Assumption was true, where we, would we expect to find a direct allusion to it in a book written by the beloved disciple, mm-hmm. uh, the book of Revelation, which is almost certainly written after Mary had died? Maybe one last chance I'll give you to connect the Assumption with the mercy of God. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the, the Assumption connects with the Easter faith. Jesus is risen. Uh, but he's not just risen because he's divine and, and to say, look what I can do. Uh, he's risen as the foretaste and promise that we will all be risen when our hearts are united with his by his merciful love. And what the Church rejoices in and celebrates in every August 15th on the Feast of the Assumption is that uh, Mary is the sign of what awaits us all as Christ's disciples in faith, uh, as we're you know, brought by his merciful love into a the glory of his resurrection. So I just see it as a, as a completion of Easter, if you will, mm-hmm. um, as uh, just rounding out Easter joy. And Easter is, of course, all about God's mercy because we didn't deserve it. And neither did Mary. You know, Mary acknowledges that she's merely the handmaid of the Lord. Yeah. Without his grace, she's nothing. His grace, uh, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, his grace is right at her origin, right from the beginning. And it reminds us, of course, that mercy of God is that we're not individuals uh, in connected with the creator of the universe, that's true, but we're a part of a huge family, alive now and still alive, experiencing the beatific vision, as well as those in the process of being purged on their way at the, at the doors, uh, you know, the, the front hall of heaven, waiting to be uh, presented into the presence of God. So, Amen, brother. Robert, thanks for joining us today on Deep in Scripture. Thanks, Marcus. And uh, God bless you in your work both out on the East and the West Coast. Uh, in both places, you're serving our Lord Jesus. So thanks a lot. Thank all of you for joining this program. I hope it's a, been a pleasure to you. Please uh, connect to deepinscripture.com to find out all about this program as well as the work of the Coming Home Network International. Until uh, next week, God bless. See you then. <laughs>